Great to see you. Thank you for being here today. If you would get out your Bible and turn to Exodus with me, that is where we'll continue uh, this morning, as Tad said. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible. And on those, in those Bibles, we're on page 27. So you could turn there and feel free to take that home. And we'll be working our way through Exodus for the next several months. So you could read along and uh, prepare for each week with that Bible. We'll be in uh, chapter 3 today, beginning in chapter 3. As we continue in Exodus, we'll encounter one of the key turning points this morning in redemptive history, one of the key moments in all of time where God did something incredibly important that remains significant to us today. So if you would, look with me at verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This verse orients us to the setting where some big things are about to go down. But as we read that one verse, it certainly doesn't describe anything that strikes us as very important, does it? Seems rather unimportant, actually. Consider how far Moses has fallen. From the palace in Egypt to the lowliest job in that culture imaginable. Moses is down and out. He's unwelcomed by the Jews. He's wanted for murder by the Egyptians. And he's embraced only by Midianites out in the wilderness, doing work that they would find absolutely disgusting. And not only that, we know from Acts chapter 7 that from the passage we looked at last week till today, it's only been seven days for us, but it's been 40 years for Moses. So 40 years after what we talked about last week, the guy still doesn't have a flock of his own. He's working for his father-in-law of all people watching his flock. He's got nothing, the passage is saying. Moses, decades before, felt compelled to leave the palace, to join the ranks of the Jewish slaves. And in a moment of understandable but sinful rage, he killed an Egyptian. And that sinful act of murder ruined his chance to be used by God to be the deliverer. Or so, chapter 3, verse 1, would lead us to think. Let's read on and see if that remains the case. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. How many of you talk to yourself that formally? <laughs> that is weird. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses, again, is out in the desert, all alone except for the sheep, when he notices a bush on fire, but not being consumed. Now, this, of course, piqued his interest, so he headed over to check it out. And as he neared the bush, he heard audibly, Moses, Moses. Those of you who have read through your Bible many times may remember that this isn't the only time God repetitiously calls out someone's name. Wherever that happens, it's a clue to us that God's about to say something really significant. And he told Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because being near God means that the very ground that Moses was on has been marked by a certain holiness. This is the first occurrence of the word holy in the book of Exodus. And it's only the second time that word has been used in the Bible thus far. But it will become a word, a theme of tremendous significance throughout the rest of the biblical story. God's holiness is of tremendous significance. Notice in verse 6 that God identified himself as the covenant-keeping God of his ancestors. And as he did so, Moses hid his face. Why? Well, because God's holy. And Moses is not. This was the right response. It's the response any human being should have at a glimpse of God. So what does it mean that God is holy? Well, one way we could describe it is that God is set apart to everything good, and God is separate from everything evil. Friends, humanity's fundamental problem is that we have a holy creator we are obligated to follow. And yet, we are bankrupt of holiness. And there is a holiness without which we cannot be in relationship with God. And so how do an unholy people like us and like Moses relate to a holy God? That is the question of all questions. Now, think for a moment about both this bush and this fire. I'll start with the fire. Fire has an incredible capacity to attract. I mean, many of us have sat around a campfire, and we sit and stare at it like idiots. Why? Well, you can't help but be drawn in to the fire's warmth, to the fire's light, to the wonder of those flickering flames. And yet, fire is nothing to mess around with. While fire attracts, it also demands distance and respect. It is more powerful than we are, we might say. This is what God's telling Moses. I'm drawing you near to me, but don't trifle 
with me. Don't get too close. I'm holy. There is nothing evil within me, and I'm completely devoted to everything good. But that's not true of you, Moses. Think also about this bush, or more precisely, the fact that there's a fire in the bush, not burning up the bush. Fire needs two things in order to survive. It needs oxygen and fuel. Wherever there's a spark and there's oxygen and fuel, you're very well bound to have fire. But in this case, the fire is burning the bush, but the bush isn't burning up. Why? Well, this fire needs no fuel. While it's burning white hot, it's requiring nothing of outside sustenance. Now file that away, it'll become important in a minute. Look at me at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, two things that are sweet before there was all the stuff we put in our food, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Termites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The verbs in these verses are beautiful. They tell us so much about the character and the attentiveness of God. God told Moses that he had seen their affliction. He told Moses that he heard their cry. He told Moses that he knew their suffering. And perhaps most beautifully of all, he said, I have come down that they might come up. Church, is there a more incredible summary of God's gracious work in every one of our lives than that? Wow. And friend, if you're here today and you're one of the people Tad prayed for, somebody who's maybe interested in Christianity but not yet convinced, this is the God we Christians trust, the God we love, the God who has stooped down, who is infinitely better, and yet has come down that He might lift us up. A God who is separate from all that is evil and devoted to all that is good. A God who sees us, who knows us, who is attentive to us. A God who uses His power to help us that we might see Him as He is. While we get glimpses of this God in these verses, this God is far more visible in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. 
He's God who came down as a baby. He's God who was lifted up as an adult, nailed to a cross, went down in the grave, came up in His resurrection, that He might bring all who turn from sin to Him, bring them out of their own death into relationship with Him. This is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Every Christian here today would love to tell you their experience of how God did that for them and how God might do that for you if you would trust in Him. Now Moses, without a doubt, as God is rattling off these powerful verbs of what He's come to do, no doubt his heart is soaring. I mean, this is the thing he has longed for for decades. This is the thing he left the palace and went down among the Jews hoping to see. Exactly what he wanted. God rescuing his people, keeping his promises, bringing them out of slavery. Likely with every passing word in chapter, verse uh, 7, 8, and 9, Moses is saying, yes, yes, yes. But then verse 10 hits like a ton of bricks. Come. I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Everything before that verse is triumphal for Moses. And then God went too far. (laughs) You see, the pronoun changed. God says, I, 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 and then he says, you. God in this verse is pledging to send Moses. Moses? Are you kidding me? Moses? Did God forget? I mean, it had been 40 years. Moses, the murderer? Moses, the one despised by the Jews, And the fugitive of the Egyptians, that Moses? The Moses following animals around out in the wilderness, that Moses? Surely we've misunderstood. Surely, God, I didn't get that right, Moses might have said. But nope, that's what it says. God chose Moses. Brothers and sisters, the rest of our passage today, all of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4, flows out of verse 10. It is an extended dialogue in which Moses is going to tell God through question or objection, here's why that's not such a good idea, God. And then God is going to say to Moses, Moses, here's why you don't tell me what is a good idea And what is not? Moses hears the supernatural call of God to deliver the Israelites. And in response, he he voices five different ways. No, thank you. And God gives five beautiful responses. We'll go through as many of them as we have time for this morning. We'll just have to see how it goes. And if we don't get to all of them, I'd encourage you 
later today or perhaps sometime this week, get with another person or two and read the rest of them yourselves if we don't get to all of them. Consider their significance in the passage and then what they teach us about God. Because, church, this text is not mainly about Moses. It's about God. This is an occasion in which God peels open the heavens, as it were, that we might get a better glimpse of who He is and what He's like. And whenever God does that, He does that in concrete, specific ways. He does it here with Moses. These verses reveal, I'm saying, the character of God, the same character that He is today. Verse 11 says, Moses said to God, here's the first one, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, on one level, that question is completely understandable, maybe even in some ways appropriate. Moses is a failed deliverer. He already tried and it didn't work. On top of that, he's a murderer. Humanly speaking, he's demonstrated he doesn't have the power to do what this takes. And yet, on another level, doesn't his question reveal a flaw in his thinking? Moses' sights are set on the wrong person. He is looking within when he should be looking without. So notice God's reaction, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. This shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. This strikes me like when the child is caught with the hand in the cookie jar. And mom says, you can't have that. And the child says, why? And mom says, because I told you. That, I mean, it doesn't answer the question. Moses says, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. What kind of answer is that? Well, beloved, it's the perfect answer. It's all Moses needed to know. It's all we need to know. Who am I? I will be with you. Who am I is the question of our day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we are literally bombarded with messages about identity. It's not always been the dominant question, but it is right now. There's an effective way and an ineffective way to go about finding an answer to that question. Looking inward is what we're taught today to do in every imaginable way. We are told, look within, and whatever you find Live that out and demand everyone else accept you for it. And when that happens, you will be happy. 
Do you, do you realize more than anything else that's what you're told today? Looking inward is exactly what Moses does here. But that approach is destined to fail because human beings are not image makers. We are image bearers. We don't look within and find something amazing and hold it up and create our own identity. That is impossible. You are a mirror of something or someone else. That's what it means to be a human being. You cannot make your own identity. We lack the resources for it. Submission to God, not commitment to self-expression, is the only way to answer the question, who am I? Instead of looking inward for identity, we must learn to look outward and upward, namely to what the Scriptures tell us about God, because we're made in the image of God. We're designed to mirror Him. There is no other effective way to answer the question, who am I? That's why God's answer to Moses that seems not to answer the question is actually the ultimate answer to the question. The issue is not who am I, but who is he? And where is he? He says, I'm with you, Moses. What else does he need? When we know who he is and that he is with us, then and only then can we know who we are. Now here Moses' second issue he brings up, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, I got a better one for you. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If God's first response to Moses seemed confusing, his second is downright maddening. Moses says, God, tell me your proper name. And God responds, I am who I am. Then he responds, I am. Then he responds, the Lord. God, what's your name? I am. Oh, geez, thanks. That helps a lot. Now, this is a bit complicated. The most complicated thing I'll try to explain today, and I have agonized over these words. Hopefully, they're clear. So hang with me. Give me two, three minutes. This is really cool and worth the work. The book of Exodus was written in Hebrew, and in Hebrew, all three of God's responses about what's His name are related to the same root Hebrew verb. It's a verb for being. 
They're different forms of a word that means to be. You'll notice in your Bibles that all the letters of the words Lord, L-O-R-D, are capitalized. There's an ancient tradition among translators, it stretches back literally thousands of years, to not translate the proper name of God and to instead substitute the actual word with another word, namely the Lord. And the reason that's all in caps is to tell you that. Instead of translating God's Hebrew name directly, the name Yahweh, they translate it as the Lord, as a way of showing ultimate respect to God. And so that makes the linkage between I am and Yahweh more confusing unless you're a nerd and have learned Hebrew. But here's the point. I am and Yahweh express the same thing about God. And it's something that is not esoteric and inaccessible. It's something about God that if we were to fully grasp it, it would change all of the questions we have about Him. When Moses asked God, what's your name? God said, I am Yahweh. On the surface, that might not seem very helpful, but it's actually everything. God is the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses, and every one of you who know Him, I can go around and say your name. This is your God. And this God is the God who simply is. He is ultimate reality. There's Im- it's impossible that anything exists apart from the God who simply is. He is self-sufficient. He is transcendent. He is distinct from what He's made and yet ever involved with what He's made. He is unconstrained. He is gloriously independent. He is without need. He is fully sufficient for all things in and of Himself. He has no needs. He is. That's what God's saying when He says, I am. Now think back to the burning bush. The burning bush is a visual of what I just described. The burning brush is a picture of I am. How? Well, the fire was burning without consuming the bush. It needed no fuel. Do you see? God Himself, the God who just is, is revealing Himself as the fire who just is. Or to put that a different way, just as the fire simply was, God simply is. 
without need, without qualification, without consumption. God is. Brothers and sisters, here's what God's saying to Moses. Moses, if I am, then there's nothing I can't do. And if I'm sending you and I'm with you, then there's nothing in my will that you can't do. Yahweh is fully capable of, to accomplish anything and everything He wants to accomplish. He is truly independent. And everyone and everything else that exists is dependent. And that means if the God who's independent calls and equips someone who's dependent, then they've got everything they need. How could anyone resist Him successfully? Why would we ever question His ability to provide what's needed? He is the God who is. If He promises to rescue His people out of Egypt, it is as good as done. If He says, I'm going to send you Moses, that's it. End of story. No need for Moses to get his questions answered. God is sufficient in and of himself. Church, when you read the commandments of the Bible as a Christian, and when you look at the responsibilities that God has set before your life presently, especially the ones that feel just out of reach, God, I can, I can cover this stuff, but that, you're going to have to give that one to somebody else. I don't have what it takes. I'm assuming I'm not the only one that sometimes feels that way. God's answer is, I'm with you. And when we say, uh... What's your name again? And God says, I am. In his mercy, God's saying, you have me. I am sufficient for all things. You need not question. Beloved, we must learn to harness our attention, not on our insufficiency, but on God's sufficiency. Yes, glance at your inadequacies. Stay humble, stay dependent, be reliant, but gaze at God's endless perfection. Gaze at His ability to make good on that which He has promised and to empower you with everything you need to obey Him and to meet the responsibilities set before you. This passage delivers a truth that if, if we will drink it deep, then really, honestly, today could be a life-changing day. That truth is this. The presence of the Lord guarantees 
the promises of the Lord. If the I am says, do this, and he says, I'm with you as you do it, end of story. Nothing else needed. God is. And when the God of that kind of unparalleled power is with you, you can take his promises to the bank. On the other side of the cross, of course, this whole conversation becomes even more palpable. In John chapter 8, Jesus was being questioned, and he responded with these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The I am of the burning bush is the Jesus who has promised, Christian, to be with you as long as you obey Him. As long as you do your devotions and come to church and give money and quit cursing when you smash your finger. No. Your relationship with God is not predicated upon your successful obedience such to win His affections. We obey not to get in, but because we're already in. And when we fail, like Moses did, we say, God, I failed. Would you forgive me? And 1 John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just. Why is that just? Because Christ was already punished for that sin. There's no double jeopardy with God. He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he lifts us back up and says, let's go at it again. The I am will never say to you, I was, because you fail in some way. He is more committed to you than you are to him. Now listen to what else he said to Moses, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has, prepared, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, that's a lot of ites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice or serve or worship to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians with incredible specificity. God says, here's what's going to happen. That is a cliff notes to the rest of the book. That is exactly what transpires. It's like God is pressing Moses to see, Moses, this is covered. I am. It's going to be fine. And I'm going to make my character and reputation known really broadly. That's what the book of Exodus is ultimately about, that God would be known. The covenant-keeping I am, only true God. Moses still isn't there. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. He didn't mean like a group of people, but a stick. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs and listen to your voice, you'll take some water from the Nile poured on the dry ground, and the water you will take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. No doubt there is some weird stuff in these verses. But don't miss the forest for the trees. All of this is still in response to Moses' third objection. There in chapter 4, verse 1. The passage is not meant to say every Christian of all ages, in all spaces, in all times, throw down a stick and it will become a snake. We might look at this and say, I'm not sure I believe that. I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that either. But friends, does our lack of seeing something make it impossible? Surely we're not that arrogant. This is a unique moment in the whole redemptive story of existence of the scriptures. And this sign will become, multiple signs will become really important to God being known. That's what's being asked about here. These signs offer confirmation of Moses' message being God's promise. 
And then we hit Moses' final response. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Do you feel a little frustrated with Moses at this point? I mean, what more can God do? He has served up a five-course meal revealing himself to Moses. I mean, come on, Moses. But are we any different? Think of everything God's done for you. And when an opportunity comes to serve him in a way that feels bigger than you, or some suffering comes that feels undeserved or more than you can bear, don't we have objections for God too? Know that the God of the Scriptures, the God who labored with Moses to let him know him, will labor with you to help you know him. This is what he's after, being known. And in the end, this is what we're to be after. Like Paul said in Philippians, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may become like him, Jesus. If there's ever a passage that's needed for a day like ours, a day in which the masses, and not just the masses out there, but our own hearts are tempted to be so confused about who am I? I pray today would be a line in the sand in which we would quit asking that first and we'd receive who he is and from the I am, then we can come to see who we are. We stand in the end, let's pray. I encourage you to take a moment and interact with God about what you have heard, then I'll pray for us. God, in a very real sense, we could say we should take off our shoes for we're standing on holy ground. Because today when your scriptures are opened and your spirit speaks, we as your church are, are rightly, no less, in your presence. 
We thank you that we've seen today that you are the I am, that you simply are, and that you lack no resources, you have no needs, you are sufficient for all things. And God, as we sung earlier this morning, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Then we sang of your great name. God, please use the needs in our lives to press us out of self-reliance, out of self-expression, back into the only way that we're designed to live. And that is in a posture of recognizing our need and receiving to your glory who you are. We thank you that in Christ, the I am is not without, but is even within us. May we live like it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our benediction this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an inapproachable light, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.